Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week, we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us this time in Las Vegas. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So in the second half of the show, we will be talking about the economics of Las Vegas appropriately enough. Obviously, the Super Bowl is coming up and the host site this year is Las Vegas itself. So uh, it's not just occasioned by Adam's visit there. So stick around for our talk about Las Vegas. But first, an initial data point, and that is $60 billion. That is the size of an aid package for Ukraine that was supported by the Biden administration, but that the U.S. Congress failed to pass this past week. That was due to opposition by Republicans. But the bill designed to strengthen the border in exchange for military support for Ukraine and Israel didn't make it very far. It failed to get the 60 votes needed to move forward after Republicans rejected it for not doing enough to secure the border. Lawmakers in the U.S. are now trying to see if there are alternative ways of getting that aid into law, but it's not yet clear if they'll succeed. European policymakers, by contrast, did manage to get a major aid package passed this past week uh, in the EU. That was in the amount of 50 billion euros. But the failure of the U.S. effort is being described as a potential disaster by some observers. The war in Ukraine is obviously stalemated at the moment, but a lot of analysts suggest that could turn against Ukraine this coming year, and uh, especially so if that aid from the United States is not forthcoming. So, Adam, I wanted to ask, uh, first off, in the absence of this financial aid from the United States, and it might still get passed, we don't don't yet know that, there are talks still underway, but if it doesn't come through, how dire is the situation for Ukraine? I mean, in the short term, can Ukraine support itself this coming year? I think the crucial distinction here is between financial assistance and military aid. And then within the military aid, the question of money and the question of the supply of crucial weapons, um, drones, ammunition. I think on the general financial economic side, the situation is serious but less acute because the EU money did go through and that is earmarked for essentially for budgetary support so as to secure economic stability in Ukraine. The IMF is also a backstop and there's the possibility of bilateral support from the European side in extreme situations. So I think the economic situation, though serious, is probably less worrying. I think the central anxiety around the American um, impasse is that this is military aid first and foremost, and America has above all being the key backstop of Ukraine's military effort. And 
even were the Europeans to attempt to step up to offset the shortfall in American support, the question would be whether they have the industrial capacity, whether or not they're willing to spend the money to actually supply the equipment that Ukraine needs. And the element that everyone seems to be focusing on is artillery rounds, like shells. And the disparity between the Russians and the Ukrainians at this point in artillery ammunition is already large. The outlook is that the Russians are likely to be firing 10,000 rounds a day, which if you figure that out over the course of the year is in the order of about 4 million rounds over the course of the year. The Ukrainians are restricting themselves to a few thousand a day. The Europeans made a pledge that they would supply a million rounds by the spring of the coming year, this year, 2024, and have fallen woefully short. They're closer to 300,000. And so I think it's that kind of waterfall, if you like, of concerns. There is the economic issue, which is medium term and is relatively stable at the current point, especially given the EU decision. Confidence plays a role there. Loans could be used instead of grants. The most serious issue is the military support. And within the military support, the most serious issue is that only the US really in key areas has the capacity. And it's a strain even for the US to step up industrial production. And the EU right now simply isn't in a position to match that. And so that, I think, is the real worry. Not an immediate collapse, but a grinding shift in the military balance to Ukraine's disfavor. And then ultimately, of course, the risk that at some point the lines break and the balance shifts dramatically. So if we were to take a look at Ukraine's own domestic economy you know, right now, I mean, aside from the war itself, to what extent has Ukraine's economy recovered to its pre-war state? I mean, I've seen reports that exports are, are back up to where they were before the war started. So yeah, what can we say about the overall condition of, of Ukraine's economy? Stable, but quite serious. Um yeah, I checked out this export data. It's interesting that the volumes of exports appear to be um, returning to pre-war levels. But the volume of exports is a funny kind of measure. It's literally tons of stuff, which doesn't really tell us very much about economic returns. In terms of value, the value of Ukraine's exports fell in 2023 compared to 2022. And is it a, a decade-long low so there isn't that much help from that side. Ukraine is a commodity exporter. The commodity prices have not exactly been buoyant in the last year. They, they spiked in 2022 and have come down since. And it's only one element of the Ukrainian economy. And right now, the balance of payments, that is the flows of money in and out of the economy, are being stabilized anyway by foreign aid. The crucial thing, probably in most people's eyes, is GDP overall production. And here we just have to wrap our heads around the impact of the 2022 shock of the invasion and the damage and the dislocation, the mass refugee movement, which knocked Ukraine's GDP back by 29%, 29%. That's a gigantic fall. And so even though Ukraine notched up a very credible 5% growth last year, which was a big surprise and a testament to their success in stabilizing the economy, it will take, you know, by the logic of compound interest, starting from a much lower base, seven to eight years for the Ukrainian economy, even growing at 5%, which is a remarkable rate under war conditions, to get back to roughly where it was in 2022, the beginning of that year before the Russian invasion. And then, of course, you're not even allowing for the fact that, you know, over a seven to eight year period, assuming a modest pre-war growth rate, the Ukrainian economy would have been far ahead of where it was in 2022. So the damage to the Ukrainian economy is lasting, it's dramatic. 
it's an economy under huge stress, testament to both the combination and the scale of foreign aid and the seriousness of Ukrainian domestic economic management, that they managed to stabilize the situation. Because the real worry in the end of 2022 was that Ukraine was so hard pressed and so short of funds that it was financing the war by printing money. And that has the result of driving inflation. Inflation spiked up to 27% per annum, not per month, per annum, but which is nevertheless an alarming rate and destabilizes the home front through the cost of living. And since then, the inflation rate is less, more than half. So it's come down to 11% at the end of, at the end of last year. So as a patient that's under huge pressure, critical condition, but currently a relatively stable pending, of course, the decisions to provide foreign aid in all the different forms that Ukraine needs. So as I mentioned, it's largely Republicans in the US Congress that have come out against aid for Ukraine. I mean, this is an issue that divides the Republican caucus in the United States. Some are for it, but but many others aren't. And I'm curious what you think this you know, from a foreign policy perspective, what's what's motivating this commitment against helping Ukraine? I mean, on one hand, I wonder, is this motivated by nationalism, you know, of a, of a kind of basic uh, familiar kind? But in that case, I wonder then why are, are Republicans also supporting financial aid for Israel? So if it's not nationalism, what what else could it be? And I guess I wonder whether there's a kind of analysis motivated by Sam Huntington's idea of kind of clash of civilizations. You know, uh, this is, this would be a kind of analysis that almost cuts in favor of support for Russia, I guess, if you look at it a certain way. I mean, so yeah, if we were to sort of look at this economic decision from, from that kind of grand foreign policy strategic perspective, I mean, what, how do you think we could clarify that? I mean, I think, it is possible there are some Republicans that have a worldview that suggests that compromise with Putin is a desirable way to move. I think they're a very, very small minority of the party. I think there may be some who regard America's open-ended commitment to Ukraine as unwise foreign policy, but presumably they then favor a negotiated peace. And it's very difficult to see how threatening to cut off Ukraine's aid, military aid in particular, will enable anything remotely like an acceptable negotiated peace, because all it does is to persuade the Russians that they're likely to win by 2026, which makes it, you know, which makes them very reluctant to negotiate. If you do favor a negotiated exit, you should presumably favor supporting Ukraine. So they bargain from a position that will yield an outcome, which is in some way acceptable to Ukrainian politics, because that will be the, the obstacle. So a sophisticated strategy of exit from this commitment would entail continuing your support. The Israel, I think, uh, case is, is telling because it gets to what's actually at stake here, because Israel doesn't need the American aid, right? It doesn't need the war it's fighting. To even call it a war at this point, I think, is kind of grotesque. It doesn't need, it's against Israel's long-term interest to be engaged in the punitive action that it is. It's easily able to afford the expenditure that it's making. It can pay for its own weapons if it does need to import them. The reason why US Congress people say they want to give money to Israel is because they want to be seen to be giving money to Israel, right? It's, it's a domestic political concern, not a strategic priority in any meaningful sense of the word. And that ultimately is what's at stake in Ukraine as well. Like, this isn't about foreign policy. It's about Donald Trump. And it's about 
the GOP's calculus that the best way to increase their chances of defeating Biden in the presidential election is to ruin the Biden presidency by all means necessary. And since Biden has committed himself to certain sorts of foreign policy objectives, whether you agree with them or not, is entirely beside the point. What you want to do is simply sabotage whatever it is the administration is setting its mind to. And Trump sees this quite clearly and has made very clear that despite the incredible concessions the Republicans won on immigration, for instance, they shouldn't accept the immigration sweetener that the Democrats had agreed to in the hope of getting the foreign policy components through. And that essentially is the regulating factor here, um, is fear of Donald Trump's vengeance if you do not go along with his catastrophic program for you know, winning re-election. To the extent it traces back to Trump, it's Trump himself who has no strategic worldview. I mean, like, it would be one thing if it were tracing back to a leader with, who, who is sort of himself ideologically motivated, but uh, I don't think anyone... I mean, been... I think he may have a pro-Putin bias, right? He clearly likes strongmen around the world. He makes no bones about this, and he does have a long-standing beef with the Ukrainians. But yeah, I, I agree. I think it's exactly as you put it. Like, if, if he did have a strong ideological position, then the the Trump redux would actually be to ideology. And in this case, I really just don't think it is. It's actually really just about trashing the Biden presidency. So if we were to shift to the perspective from Europe right now, I mean, how do the politics of Ukrainian aid play out there? I'm wondering. I mean, we've talked in previous episodes of this podcast about how, you know, Europe's economies haven't been growing as quickly as America's in recent years. And there are still pretty strict debt rules in place, insisted upon by by Germany. And, you know, at a time when many in Europe are being forced to contemplate austerity of a kind, uh, I mean, is financial aid to Ukraine a kind of stretch for, for European countries? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. Um, and uh, it's worth making some important distinctions here. So European aid to Ukraine takes two forms. One is from a national side, so national government budgets and bilateral deals for Ukraine. And and then one element is EU central coming from Brussels out of the EU's budget. And it splits about two thirds, one third in most cases. So two thirds from national sources and one third from the EU side. And there are two sorts of arguments going on, therefore, about the budgetary politics of this. One for the two thirds element that's coming from the national side, which in some cases is huge, right? So the Baltic states, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Denmark have all done at a national level more than 1% of GDP in terms of aid for, for Ukraine. That's two and a half times the US effort. It would be $200 billion in an American effort. So a gigantic amount of money from them, proportionally speaking. And that does impact national budgets. And there has indeed been a debate at the EU level about the new set of budget rules. But what's crucial is that the EU has seen this problem coming. And since the EU Commission is really rather hawkish on Ukraine, they have allowed defence spending to be what's called a relevant consideration in the discretionary judgment that the commission makes when a country exceeds the budget rules. So you're not allowed to run a deficit larger than, depending on the rule system, either 2 or 3% of GDP. And if you go above that, it's in the discretion of the commission to institute disciplinary action or to propose disciplinary action, which the other member states would have to agree. And the ad hoc agreement is that defense spending under which Ukraine aid would clearly fall would be a relevant criterion for suspending the rule. So that is how they're finessing it for the national component. What has been even more controversial of late is the joint effort 
from the EU, which is where those 50 billion euros came from that you were referring to at the top of the program. And that is coming out of the common EU budget, which is a trillion euros over a period of, of, uh, of years. And the commission insisted, so these are the people that the executive, if you like, of the EU that sit in Brussels, should the, e, the Ukraine aid should be packaged with the rest of the budget. There was a discussion about separating it out, much like in Congress, and instead it was packaged as part of the budget. And that meant that it became a huge issue of argument with Hungary. And, you know, you could say, well, here's the Trump factor, right? Trump loves Orban, the authoritarian populist leader of Hungary. And Orban has been digging in. Orban is a, you know, he leans Putin's way. Hungary has historic beefs with Ukraine because territory of Hungary, former historic Hungary, was sliced off in the creation of modern Ukraine. And so there are ethnic minority issues. The Ukrainians don't play nicely with the Hungarians either. They put Hungarian banks on Ukraine backlists. It's all really nasty. Plus, the EU has rule of law beefs with um, Orban over his authoritarian drift. And so they have been withholding tens of billions of euros funding for Hungary. And Orban, seeing the opportunity to hold the EU for ransom, basically refused until a week or so ago his approval for the common EU package. So this is not national budgets, but the Brussels back package. And finally, with a series of face-saving compromises and some loosening of the budget purse strings, has opened it up. And it's tempting from an American point of view to say, well, the Europeans have got a Trump problem too. And at one level, that's superficially correct, except the difference is that Hungary is a very small part of the EU puzzle and ultimately can be muscled. And Brussels was thinking hard about different routes to go down. And the GOP is you know, quite likely to end up as the governing party of the United States by the end of this year. So we're talking apples and oranges or, you know, uh, big fish, small fish here. The Hungarians are, or the Orban's government is a problem. All of this, by the way, and we, this is crucial on both sides of the Atlantic, is driving a lot of people to propose that Russian assets should simply be seized. This is really the hot topic on both sides of the Atlantic. And it's kind of perverse because, A, it's an accounting figment, really. The Russian money isn't, you know, pots that sit in a, you know, a cave somewhere that can be raided. It's just, it's largely debt owed by us, in other words, the West, notably the Europeans, to the Russians, which we could just cancel. And instead, what we're trying to do is, quote unquote, confiscate it and use that money to somehow help the Ukrainians, which is a way of avoiding the political problem, right? It's a balance sheet entry that's already there that wouldn't require the West to appropriate more funds that could someplace be seized. It's also a breach of international law in various ways, and so is quite controversial. But when people hear that topic being discussed, it's because both on the European and on the American side, the continuing ongoing funding of Ukraine over a period of years going forward is increasingly difficult to conceive of in political terms. Hmm. And, and and just to spell out the, the downside of pursuing that course, I mean, you say it's a violation of international law, and then Presumably, the thought is this would sort of undermine the West's leadership on, on international financial questions. That's what conservative opponents say. Uh, and, you know, they have reason on their side on that score. I mean, really, you know, it's for the war waging parties to um, make that kind of claim. Like Russia has not, you know, uh, committed a violation of international law with regard to the EU. It has it's aggressed egregiously against Ukraine. So the EU doesn't really have standing to do this. And the money is, most of it is is in European Central Bank accounts. Um, so 
So I think there were quite fundamental questions there. And for that reason, several national governments, notably the Germans, are objecting to this move, which is transparently driven by the political difficulty of just appropriating the funds the normal way. So finally, uh, I wanted to turn attention back to Ukraine itself. And I'm curious, you know, there's a lot of talk of Ukraine integrating with the West, integrating with NATO and integrating specifically with the EU. And I'm curious how well suited is Ukraine right now to integrate with Western economies in that way? I mean, just on the merits, is Ukraine really a strong candidate to join the EU's single market right now? Is it still, you know, beset by corruption in the ways we've heard about in the past? That was almost a kind of synonymous reference when we talked about Ukraine before this war started. So yeah, where do things stand now? Yeah, I mean, I think we've moved from the hypothetical to the real. I mean, in the sense that Ukraine has started accession talks with the EU, which is a huge, you know, when you move from an associate status and being, you know, having talks about talks to being in the process of actually joining. And that's what happened with Ukraine. So, but this could take a very long time. The possibilities, the boosters, you know, point to the fact that Ukraine has gigantic agricultural resources. It has uh, 41 million hectares of agricultural land, which is compared to France, which is the big agricultural powerhouse of 30 million hectares. So potentially it could transform the European agroeconomy. It has, of course, that Black Earth region, which is this extraordinary fertile land. Ukraine is widely discussed as a green energy hub, and it obviously has very considerable digital resources that have been on display during the war. So the Ukraine boosters kind of push this view, plus the whole reconstruction of Ukraine could be like a Marshall Plan stimulus effort for the infrastructure industries of Europe. So that's the positive vision. The big worry is the administrative, political, legal demands of entry, right? So joining the EU, even if you are a powerful, well-organized state, is a huge lift. As the British are discovering as they exit, the EU does a huge amount of governing for you infrastructurally. There's this thing called the acquis communautaire, which is the the communal acquisition, if you like. And it consists of 33 chapters of the most elaborate regulation of various types, which a future member state has to as to join up to, does Ukraine have the administrative capacity to really to to go through that process is a huge question. Others have managed its big ask. Then there is this long-standing issue of corruption, which centers in the very first instance on the judicial system, which the constitutional court is itself accused of being entangled in corrupt practices. So both the IMF and the EU have been pushing very hard for a series of reforms which are supposed to safeguard the stability of the rule of law in Ukraine going forward. There have been a series of proposals about, for instance, asset declarations for Ukrainian members of parliament. There are money laundering legislation that needs to be passed, uh, establishing the anti-corruption prosecutor as a truly independent actor. All of these sorts of institutional changes need to be put in place, I think, before anyone can can be convinced that we even know the scale of the problem. But fundamentally, and this is the point to go back to, the basic problem is that Ukraine is poor, and it is much poorer than, than the EU average, roughly a third of the EU average, in fact, in terms of GDP per capita. And so integrating a state as big as this, with a population of 40 million plus, with a GDP per capita one third, the the EU average is a huge challenge for the EU because the EU is, it's not NAFTA, it's not its not just a trade deal, right? It's, um, 
it's a very complex redistributive system. And the effect of Ukraine joining would be that it would be entitled, according to calculations by EU officials, to as much as 186 billion euros in transfers over a seven year period once it joined. And those would flow to agriculture, which is this promising but hugely expensive, given the EU subsidy regime sector, and general reconstruction and convergence kind of funding so as to raise the level of Ukraine's infrastructure. And the effect of that would be to tip other member states, which currently are in receipt of funding from the EU on net, to being net contributors. So the as you add Ukraine into the EU's budgetary system, you A, have to increase the size of the budget, which is a red flag, and then B, you have to redistribute that budget to what is now a very large 44 million people at one third of the EU average will be in receipt of very large transfers. And that's really the challenge for the EU. There is potential. The political and institutional problems may be possible. But the underlying underlying problem is this issue of economic growth. And, and as we were saying earlier in, the, in, this, in this segment, if you start from the kind of low level Ukraine's currently at in the middle of the war, even 5% per annum growth, which will be rapid, will take, you know, well, it will take literally decades and decades before it approaches the EU average. Yeah, these are questions also, obviously, the United States does not have to contemplate it being uh, an ocean away from uh, the EU single market and all these questions. They're just talking about a one-time transfer of money, but that's obviously difficult enough in Washington these days. So, yeah, we will leave the conversation here, though, for now. i uh, be back in a second to talk about Las Vegas. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, welcome back. We're going to be talking about the economics of Las Vegas and our data point there is 24. Las Vegas is the 24th largest city in the United States of America. Surprisingly low on that list, uh, given how the entire world sometimes draws its attention to this American city, not least this weekend when it hosts the Super Bowl, the final championship game of the American football season. Because the greatest sporting event is coming to the greatest arena on earth. It's more than the Super Bowl. It's the Super Bowl in Las Vegas. So yeah, we thought we would dig into the uh, peculiar and special economy that is Las Vegas. Of course, anyone who knows about Las Vegas knows that it's a city of gambling. And I was digging into the, the history a little bit, Adam, and it struck me that the origins of its city as a place of gambling is tied 
if I understood correctly, to the building of the Hoover Dam, this major infrastructure project not far away in the early 20th century. And a lot of young men were brought to work on that project. They were eventually catered to with various forms of entertainment, including, you know, debauched forms of entertainment like gambling. You know, I was curious historically whether that's a typical phenomenon that kind of gender imbalances in an economic setting can have distorting economic effects, even in the longer term. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about the significance of that basic logic. And you see it in almost all settler colonial societies, of which, you know, Vegas will be a kind of pretty typical example in that the, you know, the original frontier pioneers tend to skew masculine and that that induces a you know polarized highly gendered dimension to the mechanisms of resource mobilization exploitation that go on in those processes of growth and then those societies stabilizes the gender balance returns to you know something more like 50-50 and in settler colonial societies the presence of women is tracked in that way right it's if you look at the early history of the united states that's always one of the critical variables as to how stable a colony has become because of course it that on that hinges the question of whether it can self reproduce then the wild west was notorious it was wild largely because it was to a considerable extent male and the man camp phenomenon so called of the present day is you know in any major zone of construction a well known phenomenon both of you know the acceleration of various types of violence and exploitation but also other sorts of radicalization so if you look at um you know islamic radicalism and the way it's spread in the middle east one of the zones of recruitment is in the man camps of the migrant labor forces in the gulf states which are overwhelmingly male do you find more women in the service sector in the urban areas there but on the construction sites and the out in the oil and the gas fields it's overwhelmingly men and this phenomenon has actually been studied empirically because in the highly contentious pipeline politics of the united states today um one of the concerns of the indigenous native opposition to the pipeline development is the impact on indigenous american native american society of the highly male skewed man camp construction bases that are set up to build the pipelines and develop the fracking industry that follows and so serious are these that the bureau us bureau of justice statistics in 2019 actually undertook a study an empirical quantified study of the relationship between male skewed construction development and criminal violence both assault murder and sexual violence and they used the bakken fracking field as a kind of quintessential uh, in this is in montana and north dakota and it's the heart of the of the what of the hearts of the fracking industry and they saw an extraordinary surge in all sorts of violence around in those regions around the period of the first surge of fracking into those regions between 2006 and 2012 just really double digit increases in assault rape uh, other forms of uh, sexual assault in these highly unbalanced uh, overwhelmingly male economically driven you know frontiers of, of of development so no it's a real it's a real phenomenon and these places aren't called wild for nothing 
And yet the distorted phenomenon that we're describing with its, uh, you know, it getting expressed in, in gambling, it's now been universalized to a large extent in the United States. I mean, sports gambling is pretty much legalized everywhere in the United States now. Due to a, a recent Supreme Court decision, casinos have also sprouted up in, in a growing number of states. You know, these are things that used to make Las Vegas special economically, but but no longer do. And I'm curious how that how that's affected the city. Is it less reliant on gambling than it once was? Yeah, the sports betting phenomenon. Choose Junior will be hosting a uh, a, a Super Bowl party. I, I'm 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 exiled for the night. We'll go out with my European friends and go to Brooklyn. But Choose Junior is hosting a Super Bowl party, which will entirely be driven, I'm sure, by <laughs> you know smartphone uh, uh, sports betting. Uh, if my recent experiences of watching. Super Bowl with with said uh, young person or anything to go by. You know, small bets, they make the whole thing more exciting. And it has been, if you do watch American sports, an astonishing transformation in the pattern of advertising in recent years, which used to be entirely driven by trucks and, you know, beer and and uh, erectile disorder products and is now heavily, is heavily featuring um, sports betting. But I think they're different markets, you know, and for all of the, you know, sports betting was was never a never the big, the mainstay of, of Vegas. And when we think of Vegas and Reno, we we tend to think of, you know, the glamorous, the the roulette tables and the and the poker tables and so on. It's slots that actually drive this business, which if you've ever been to one of these places are just about the most miserable thing you've ever seen in your life. It's people literally being, I mean, it's this weird human machine symbiosis of it's not clear who's milking who, but it's really, it's really, a, it's really a bizarre, it's like a production line, like a Fordist factory production line in which, you know, these cash tokens circulate over and over again. That's really what drives, you know, at what's at the heart of the of the casino business plus the resort revenue, right? So the, the the hotel chains, the restaurants, the entire business that sits on top of it. You know, Vegas did record business in in recent years in the recovery coming out of COVID. And I don't think there's any reason to expect a huge hit from the sports betting side. Yeah, uh, Vegas is obviously geographically also interesting. It's, it's, you know, smack in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Uh, and I'm curious... What is the necessary infrastructure for a city like that? I mean, where does Las Vegas even get its water from, for example? I mean, before water, the crucial thing is transport, right? So before before there were cars and airplanes, how did you get to a place like this? And the answer is the railway. Las Vegas exists as a place because of the railway. It's a railway junction, first and foremost, on, on the railways between Salt Lake City and Los Angeles. That's why it's there. Um, it attracted farmers. And then when people began to settle the question of water, came to the fore and the entire you know urban civilization there depends on water brought through a very elaborate public infrastructure the the water district which brings water from lake mead to the valley it's built 6500 miles of pipe uh, created a reservoir system capable on a good day of storing 900 million gallons of water and so yeah vegas is is a hugely architected in that sense also almost completely unsustainable ecosystem, which will depend, if it is ever going to work, is going to depend on a massive transition to renewable energy, which would make it you know, capable of generating huge amounts of power, given the amount of insulation they have there of, of sun. And then you would presumably need to be doing like very elaborate um, water conservation, water economization and recycling of water so as to 
enable a, a city like that to persist in a zone which is going to get hotter and hotter and more and more difficult to inhabit in decades to come. The other, geographically, the other aspect of Vegas I found interesting is that the U.S. military has always had a, a major presence nearby. I'm curious how that's played a, a role in, in the development of Vegas, if at all. Yeah, the, if you look at the, um, you know, kind of Vegas economy websites, the surprising thing they note is that the largest employer in the the area of the city is not actually a casino, but um, Nellis Air Force Base with 12,000 plus a military and civilian employees. It's an association that goes back to the aftermath of World War One, when America emerges as a aerial uh, military power and, and folks go looking for places to train pilots. Vegas was used early on in air transport as one of the stopping off points on transit routes to the West. And you mentioned earlier on the, so I think there are three phases really in Vegas's development as a city. And the first is the railroad intersection in 1905. The second then is the Hoover Dam construction cruise from 1931 onwards. But the real boom in the city's development, which triples Vegas's population in the 1940s is World War II. Um, and like much of the rest of the American West, the boom in the modern economy of the American West is directly and heavily tied to the aerospace industry and the very, very large uh, expenditures of investment that were made in the American West in the course of World War II. LA in particular is you know, a story of that. And we were talking the other day about Boeing and its development, which also is heavily influenced by the military industrial effort of the, of the war. There was a big magnesium factory outside Vegas during the war. The base infrastructure has expanded dramatically. The gunnery school of the American Air Force. So these are the folks that sit in those horrible tiny little gun turrets in the fine fortresses and whatever that's all located in vegas and it becomes one of the bases for i guess it's like the american air force's equivalent of top gun which is the naval one right so this would be like this would be like the american air force's fighter school is there and then most notoriously of course the nevada test site which from the 50s onwards becomes the location for i mean what is still one of the more staggering phenomena of the mid-20th century which are open air public hydrogen bomb tests. And it's only 60 miles from downtown Las Vegas. Um, so you could go watch and people did like hydrogen bomb testing. Apparently, you know, it was part of the attraction of many of the hotels and the resorts. And, uh, you know, people kind of enjoyed the spectacle and the and the, you know, the giant sonic, these giant booms that would be generated. So it was part of the whole sort of otherworldly reality of Vegas in the 50s that it was directly tied into the yeah, the atomic bomb program. So you could go see Elvis Presley and then an actual atomic bomb. Yeah, atom atom atomic cocktails in the Skyrim. Uh, yeah. Several <laughs> misatomic pageants were held to display the city's modernity. And the and the Department of Energy was a huge employer in you know maintaining the test site and so on. So yes, this goes back to the sort of settler colonial feel, right? That you know the American military is key insofar as America has a military in the 19th century, right? It's about powering the expansion of, of white colonial settlement into the interior of the United States. And that remains a basic dynamic in Vegas's history throughout the 20th and 21st centuries as well. Yeah, I guess finally, I did want to ask if it would be possible to extrapolate the Las Vegas economy that you're describing to, to a macro scale. You know, is there a plausible model here for, for a national economy? Or, you know, is it dependent on being on the periphery 
of a, of a broader economy the way that Las Vegas, in fact, is. I mean, you you know, there's a there's one vision I think that sees, as it were, the sort of post-industrial future as you know, centered on the fun economy, you know, um, the recent the recent rash of stories about Taylor Swift and Beyonce's giant tours have encouraged this idea of the fun economy as a major driver of macroeconomic events. And, you know, Vegas is doubling down on this, right? So they attracted the Raiders from poor old Oakland. And, you know, that's about as symbolic a shift as you could possibly imagine from post-industrial Oakland to, to Vegas. Um, they've also got a hockey team, I gather, which is you know, as freakish as you could possibly imagine playing ice hockey in the in the desert. The population of Vegas is rapidly expanding. But if you imagine this written large to a national level, it is frankly a bit of a nightmare because Vegas's population and labor force may be expanding, but its output um, has grown only at the rate, broadly speaking, of the broader American economy. And so productivity in the Las Vegas economy is is very low. I mean, and and falling to a considerable extent over time as the labor intensity of services increases. Wages are well below national averages. Poverty rates are higher. Inequality rates are higher. The you know the glitzy front side. It's a bit of a cliche, but does hide a really dark underspelly, which is not so much about vice, but about in economic inequality and disadvantage. Brookings does a ranking of metro areas of the United States in terms of their dynamism and their desirability and their sustainability. And in that ranking, that covers 192 metro areas. And America is not a very urban place, right? It's, it, there are not, not that many big cities. So it's 192. I think there are places with populations greater than 250,000. In that ranking, Vegas has, over the last couple of years, slid from a position in the low hundreds to 171 out of 192. So it's not by any stretch of the imagination a socioeconomic success story in terms of for the people that live there. It's a tough, tough, tough uh, emblem in many ways of the dysfunction of many aspects of American society. And that isn't, again, to emphasize, it isn't the standard sort of light and dark of you know moralism. It's the question simply of whether or not these this service economy, this fun economy actually generates decent living for the people that work in it. And on that score, I think, um, yeah, it's hard to describe it as a success story. Loads of jobs, very low wage, very insecure, and a high cost of living. Hmm. I mean, perhaps not a coincidence, but I do associate Las Vegas, I think, correctly with with a new form of labor activism as well. I think these kind of service jobs have new types of, of labor or hotels. Right? Yeah. yeah, they're trying, you know, and, and it would make sense. I mean, the, given the structure of the economy you're describing, I mean, I'm not sure how much progress they're making, but that would seem to be also be a natural outgrowth. I mean, it's an important point you're making there because the imagination of the American working class, you know, is still as the Biden administration's spokespeople have made and the president himself has made so abundantly clear still rooted essentially in a mid 20th century if not 19th century vision of what working class labor is which is essentially hard hat blue collar factory construction centered vision of blue collar work of US steel we America. talked about US yeah. steel we talk about right and the the endless emphasis on manufacturing and investment in factories like you know doubling down it's really a kind of Tonka toy vision of uh, American society and the American economy. 
And to that extent, Vegas, places like Vegas and Miami are much more representative of where working class Americans actually have to fight the daily struggle of making a living and getting by and getting decent services for themselves and their families. And Colin and Union 226 is, you know, has become one of the stars of the new American labor movement. It negotiated by threatening a strike of over 35,000 workers on the Las Vegas Strip. It at the MGM Resort, Caesars wins. It forced a um, a major renegotiation of the of the contract for its members, including a ten percent wage increase and a thirty two percent increase over five years. So, indeed, it is one of the sites of a new form of American uh, labor activism, and with reason, because in a city like Vegas, um, where the cost of living is set by you know, the, de- the demands of a constantly expanding population to meet the tourist visitors, you know, every every cent counts. Well, that's something to keep in mind as uh, we watch the Super Bowl this weekend or watch Taylor Swift watch the Super Bowl, as it were. But uh, yeah, I'm guessing that won't come up in the broadcast, but obviously it is a lot of labor making a place like Las Vegas work. Okay, we will have to leave the conversation off here for now, but we will be back, as always, next week. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.